Welcome to the Grattan Podcast. I'm Kat Clay, and today we're here to talk about our second report on congestion, deep diving into how congestion charging could be implemented in Melbourne and Sydney. Last week, Grattan's Transport and Cities program released a report on congestion charging by charging a small fee to use the highest demand roads at the highest demand times. We can make a permanent cut to congestion. If you haven't already done so, I'd recommend listening to last week's podcast first. So buckle your seatbelts and put your transport nerd hats on. We'll be talking all things cordon charging with two Grattan experts, Greg Moran and James Ha. Welcome, guys. Hi, Kat. Hi, Kat. So firstly, Greg, for any of our listeners who might not have seen the first report or listened to the last podcast, could you give us the 60-second rundown of congestion charging? Yeah, sure, Kat. So, and I think just um, stepping back for a second, I suppose where the, our starting point for this work and the first report was that congestion is a real problem in our larger cities. That's no surprise to anyone. And it's a big enough problem to do something about, even if that something means making some hard choices. So the issue, though, has really been that to date, the main response to congestion from governments has been to just build more roads and public transport. But we've had decades of this investment, and it's just left us with the congestion we have today. So, so we concluded that it's time for a new approach, uh, and it's time for congestion charging. So. Uh, as you said, charging for the most in-demand roads at the most in-demand times. And so in that first report, you know, we sought to set out that the theory behind congestion charging is sound. It's already being done overseas. Uh, and we did the work to show that it would be effective in Sydney and Melbourne and that a lot of the fears about it being unfair to certain groups are largely overblown. So this new report talks exactly how congestion charging should be implemented especially in Sydney and Melbourne. Talk us through what that looks like. So as you say, this report is uh, about the specifics of how we imagine it being implemented. Uh, and we also try to tackle some of the, the issues facing governments that will come out of a reform like this. So things around privacy, uh, things around how congestion charging will interact with existing toll roads, uh, enforcement issues, things like that. But if we get down to the nitty gritty, so what are we actually recommending here? So we're recommending that the New South Wales and Victorian governments start with a congestion charge that targets the Sydney and Melbourne CBDs. So the Sydney and Melbourne CBDs and the inner suburbs around them, uh, unsurprisingly, probably our most congested uh, areas. And that's, of course, because we have large numbers of people driving there in the mornings and from their afternoons. And this travel is related to commuting to work, uh, other work and business-related travel, but even personal, uh, recreational, shopping travel. And, of course, the CBDs in Sydney and Melbourne are also quite geographically central to some extent. So the type of congestion charge that we are recommending be applied in each CBD is known as a cordon charge. And the way that this works is that you pay to drive into the cordoned area in the morning peak and then pay to drive out of the cordon in the afternoon peak. In terms of where exactly these cordons would be, obviously listeners can take a look at the report and we've got uh, maps there to show exactly where the boundaries would lie. But just roughly speaking, our recommended cordon for the Sydney CBD would cover the area west of and including the domain north of Central Station and east of Piermont. 
in Melbourne, our recommended cordon for the CBD covers the hodl grid and the high-rise areas of Docklands and Southbank. And so the way this cordon would be enforced is through automatic number plate recognition cameras. So it would all be automated. There'd be no need for stopping at the edge of the cordon and getting a paper ticket or uh, getting an e-tag in your car like you do for toll roads. So as someone was driving into the city, um, the camera would take a photograph of the number plate. Um, that'd go to a system and then that would obviously charge your account. Exactly. So if you were just driving in on a once-off occasion, you might get a bill in the mail um, or if you're a regular user, you might set up an account. So a bit like a, a toll road in that respect. The question for me is like, why, why would we use this technology? Why not use people's smartphones? They've got them on every day when they drive. Yeah, look, it's a really good question and because, you know, we use smart, I mean, most people have smartphones and we particularly when we're on the road, we're using them for navigation. So that does seem like um, the obvious answer here. But there's a few reasons why we don't think that's the best technology. Firstly, and though it might be hard to believe, there's still something like 10% of Australians don't have a smartphone. And certainly there's no law requiring drivers to, to have a smartphone. But even if uh, enough people did have a phone to use, we'd need some way of ensuring that the phone and any necessary apps were working as required. Um, we also wouldn't want to be encouraging people to be fiddling with their phones while driving for obvious safety reasons. So we think a technology like automatic number plate recognition cameras that has the enforcement mechanism built in and requires less of drivers, we think that's a better technology. So getting to the really big question that everybody wants to know the answer to, what we really want to know is how much you would charge people to enter the city. We're recommending two levels of charge. So the first would be a peak charge of $5 and that would apply at the absolute busiest time. So that would be around 8 to 9.30 in the morning and around 4 to 6 in the afternoon. But we'd also have a lower shoulder charge of $3 and that would apply in the half hour or so around those peak times. And so we came up with those recommended levels of charge by looking at the congestion charges that apply overseas and also at the level of public transport fares in Sydney and Melbourne. So what are people that get public transport kind of already paying to access the CBD? And so after looking at all of that and coming to these levels of charge, we were satisfied that they would be at a level uh, that would be effective, so to get the kind of behavioural change and reduction in congestion that we're after, but would also, it's still reasonably modest. But in reality, we could imagine that if a government was to do uh, further work in actually putting one of these schemes in place, they might find that a charge that's slightly higher or lower might actually be um, the more optimal level of charge. And so I should also just add that the $5 and $3 charges that I'm talking about, that would just apply to cars, um, whereas you would have higher charges for trucks given that they obviously take up more road space and are more congesting. And the thing is too, you don't want to price it too high, otherwise people won't drive at all. Um, but if you price it too low, then it's not going to put anyone off driving at all. Um, so there's a kind of happy medium in the middle there. Exactly. It's all about a balance there. So what you've said is exactly right. If it's too low, then obviously there's not much of an impost on people. And if there's not much of an impost, we won't really have an effect. But at the same time, uh, trying to get the roads completely quiet like it's the middle of the night through a really high charge, that defeats the purpose entirely as well because people aren't and society isn't 
getting the benefit of travel. So James, will this actually help traffic heading into the city? Yeah, we think so. So both from looking at overseas experience, but also looking from traffic modeling that we've done around this level of charge. Um, it seems like it'll have a really noticeable effect on congestion. So for a start, you'd expect about 40% fewer cars entering the CBD during the morning peak. Um, and the average speed on the roads within the CBD would increase by up to 16%. Um, we also expect some sections of major arterial roads leading to the CBD to be up to 20% faster. And across the entire metropolitan network of Sydney and Melbourne, the average speed for drivers would increase by around 1% in the morning peak. So 1% sounds modest, but as we discussed in last week's podcast, it's worth keeping in mind that Sydney's $17 billion WestConnex project, which is probably the biggest transport infrastructure project in Australia right now, that's estimated to increase the average speed across Sydney's network by only between 1.7 and 3% each day. So Greg, in terms of a cordon scheme, how much does that actually cost to implement? What's the cost to us? And what are we talking about in dollar values? The setup cost would be pretty material, so they'd be, it'd be about $100 million to set up. Uh, that's just the fixed sort of upfront cost. And then to operate each year, it might cost around 10 to $30 million. And so that really depends on the city, uh, the, the traffic volumes being processed by the scheme, um, some, how, the, how the technical details of the operating system end up. So that's why we've kind of, kind of got a bit of a range around the operating cost there. But it's worth noting that these costs will be easily covered by the revenue that's brought in by the scheme. And even more important than that, uh, we've done the work to show that in both Sydney and Melbourne, all of the economic costs of the scheme, so both the setup costs, uh, the cost to people of the inconvenience of them now uh, switching to a different mode of travel or traveling to a different destination other than the CBD, uh, any increase in crowding in public transport, we see. So all of the economic costs of the scheme will be outweighed by the benefits. And those benefits are, of course, travel time savings for cars, travel time savings for commercial vehicles and freight, lower vehicle operating costs and lower environmental costs too. So it sounds like this uh, scheme could actually make money for the government. I mean, what, what are you suggesting we do with that money? I mean, what can we use it for? So the point that I'd make about the congestion charge is that it's not designed to raise revenue. It's about managing road space better. Um, and you, you could design a scheme that raised as much revenue as possible, but that's not what we've done. So the schemes that we're recommending, they're not likely to raise any more than about $120 million per year once you um, factor in the operating costs. Um, and that's a really tiny amount compared to state government's budgets. And we think that this, this is a good thing. Um, we want to get a good effect on congestion with as little inconvenience for people as possible. Now, that amount of money, it's certainly not enough to buy you a new train line or to get rid of vehicle registration, for example. But governments could do sensible things with the money. So they could improve pedestrian signaling and infrastructure and safety in the CBD, for example. Pretty much every driver who parks in the CBD then becomes a pedestrian. So they'll benefit from how the charge is spent. And pedestrian congestion is a real concern in Sydney and Melbourne, both because of the delays people face and the safety risks when foot traffic spills out onto the road. So another smart way to spend the revenue would be to expand bus routes in underserviced outer suburbs, mainly to link residents there with existing train lines. 
Um, or possibly you can imagine waiving vehicle registration for the smallest 1% of cars to try and counter the arms race for ever bigger, ever more congesting four-wheel drives. So governments can be creative with how they use the revenue. If they think public acceptability is the main problem, um, you know, they could dedicate the money to something popular but not as relevant. So like an upgrade to a trauma center at Royal Melbourne Hospital or a new facility at the Sydney Children's Hospital. Um, so state governments do have flexibility, but yeah, we would hope that they use the revenue in a sensible way. So I think one of the things we talked about last week too was this idea of who's paying the charge, who's paying the bill. And it was quite surprising really that it's actually higher income earners. Did you want to go over that a little bit again? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. The, the people who are driving to the CBD in peak period are mainly commuters and people driving for work. And those commuters are some of the most advantaged people in Australia. So they typically earn more than the people catching public transport, um, and they earn a lot more than the people who don't work in the CBD. And while you might be worried that it's people from outer suburbs with no other option but to drive who are you know, slugging it in and paying the charge, it's actually people who live closer to the CBD that are more likely to drive to it. So there's lots more drivers from Sydney's North Shore and Eastern suburbs than from Penrith or Cabramatta. And similarly in Melbourne, where there's lots more people from Kew and Richmond driving to the city than from either Dandenong or Werribee. And it's really interesting being a girl from Penrith, um, remembering driving down the M4 to get to the city, to get to university, to hear the fact that it's actually um, people from the Lower North Shore who are driving into the city most of all. So it's some fascinating stuff. So turning back to you, Greg, you know, Accordon will help fix the traffic in the city, but what about the areas around Sydney and Melbourne? I mean, the CBD is looking really good now because there's no traffic there, but what will happen to the rest of the city? Definitely congestion is not just restricted to the, C, uh, to the CBD. And I, I guess that's why we see a CBD quarter in charge as really just the first phase of a pathway to making congestion charging um, even more effective, even more widespread and, and even fairer. And so we imagine that once a CBD cordon charge is established, governments should move to a second phase where congestion charges are implemented on the busiest sections of Sydney and Melbourne's major freeways and arterials. It's on these roads where some of our worst congestion exists today and where it will continue to exist even after a CBD cordon is put in place. So in this report, we haven't been too prescriptive around uh, which roads and exactly where we might have those what are known as corridor charges. Um, and that's because we don't really see these being implemented until a few years into the future. And obviously in a few years into, a, into the future, we'll have different traffic and congestion patterns. But nevertheless, we're confident that if we can implement a CBD cordon charge, the public can get used to the idea of congestion charging. They can see that it's effective. Then expanding that charge to key road corridors, we think that will work and be effective. So you've made the suggestion that there's corridor charging across the network, but won't that turn all the other roads into rat runs? Yeah, so we thought that might be a risk as well. But interestingly, the modelling we had done showed that that kind of behaviour would actually be really limited. And so corridor charging uh, wouldn't just shift congestion around, it would have a congestion reducing effect. And I guess the more we thought about it, we, uh, we kind of came to the realisation that perhaps we shouldn't have been so surprised. And the reason for that is that there were a few good alternatives to key arterials and freeways. 
if we don't take uh, a direct arterial somewhere, it means we have to take a number of side streets, go through a number of intersections. So really, if people don't want to pay the court and charge to use that very convenient arterial, the next best driving option is a lot less attractive. So instead of just rat running, we might see them either not take the trip or perhaps take another mode of transport. So your next recommendation of this three-phase plan is networked-wide, time-of-day, distance-based charging. So you want to charge me to drive my four-wheel drive on the road. Are you crazy? <laughs> so, well, I guess the thing here to remember is that we're already paying for all of our driving in a way, or at least most of us are already paying for all of our driving, and that's through fuel excise. And so the problem with fuel excise, though, is that obviously electric cars don't pay any, and we're increasingly having more of those on the road. People that can afford a newer car, a more fuel-efficient car, they pay less fuel excise than people driving older cars. And then, of course, fuel excise, it doesn't discriminate between driving on a quiet road in the middle of the night or driving on a busy inner city street in, in peak hour, network-wide charging would be able to uh, make those distinctions. And so it would be a much more effective charge in terms of reducing congestion. And it's potentially a pathway to a much fairer regime of fees and charges for, for road use. So if we have network-wide distance-based charging, we can actually now have a new revenue source that, al that allows us to look at reforming some of those uh, other taxes like fuel excise or even things like vehicle registration. Network-wide distance-based charging, it is a big step and sort of as you reacted, it's quite a, um, a different way of, of paying for our road use. And there are still a lot of hurdles to be overcome uh, before we can implement it. Um, things like are we sure that GPS technology will be reliable enough? Can we get multiple levels of government on board with these reforming of fees that I'm talking about? And so we think there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. It's much more of a longer term prospect. Um, it's something that's not really in place for cars anywhere in the world. Um, Singapore is looking at moving in that direction. We have some heavy vehicle charging regimes that are similar, but it would be pretty revolutionary, but it would be worthwhile. So we're keeping it on the agenda and it's something that should be a long-term goal. So the other way that it kind of changes how people pay for the roads is, so we're paying fuel excise, we're paying for petrol when we get out on the road, but we're also paying with our time. When we sit there in traffic, that's a huge time cost to Australian society. And so if you introduce a network-wide charge that helps to keep all of the roads flowing better and reduce the delays that we face. We're paying with money rather than our time. But the good thing about paying with money is that it's not wasted once you pay it because that money can be used for things. So the government collects that revenue and can spend it on uh, whether it just be returned to people in tax cuts or spent on new infrastructure, um, as opposed to the time that's wasted in traffic, which is just lost to society forever. And that's a really good point, that your time is worth money um, and people don't value it enough. So one final question um, for you, James. There's a question that if we implemented network-wide time-of-day distance-based charging, that there's a certain level of monitoring that would need to be installed in our cars, whether that's GPS, whether that's um, cameras, 
What about my privacy? Don't I have the right to drive to my tinfoil hat society meetings without anybody knowing about it? <laughs> so you're, you're right, the privacy is an issue, but there's some pretty effective solutions too. So we do imagine that you would need GPS to implement a network-wide charge. Um, and so that means a device in the car called an onboard unit. Um, and that device would sit in your car and determine the distances that you've driven and the times that you've traveled. Um, and so the options that you have to protect your privacy, there's sort of two of them. So you could either have the device in your car calculating the bill for you, and then it sends that bill wirelessly to the charging authority. Um, and so that means that all of your location data stays on the device, so it never leaves your car. Um, and you just get sent the bill in the mail or debited from your account. The alternative option is that you're the device in your car could send location data to one division of the congestion charging authority, but your vehicle ID would be encrypted. So that means that the division uh, that it's sent to would process the data and determine your bill, but it would have no way of identifying you. So that division would then send the bill and your encrypted ID to a second division, which can read the encryption and send you the invoice, but they don't get your location data. And the benefit of this approach is that the de-identified location data collected by the first division can be used for infrastructure planning because governments would know which roads are most in demand. So there are benefits to this, but the main thing is that we do keep privacy in mind as these technologies are developed. Um, thank you so much, Greg and James, for taking us through this bold vision of how to combat congestion in Melbourne and Sydney. If you'd like to read the report they've been talking about today or any of our past reports, please visit our website at grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and Facebook Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.